Get used to the mantra, all gas, no brake. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Turn on the Jets podcast. I'm your host, Will Parkinson, at WillPaw11 on Twitter. I'm joined by a very special guest today, Rich Cimini of ESPN. How's everything going, Rich? Uh, great. Thanks for having me on, Will. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's an exciting time in, uh, in Jets land. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure for yourself, obviously, you know, we're in the heat of uh, right before free agency with some of the, um, you know, players, veterans getting cut right now. The salary cap officially announced at $182.5 million yesterday. Um, so, a lot of a lot of change going on. Luckily for the Jets, their cap situation is good for first time in a while. So um, that'll be you know exciting for Jets fans. But kind of wanted to start you off on the the hot topic of um, you know Sam number two. Do you trade back? Do you keep Sam? There's a million different options. As the listeners know, I'm a little bit of a Sam defender, so I prefer they keep him. But I also am realistic that that might not be the case. So um, what do you think? Um, gut feeling will happen at number two. Um, and what the Jets will do with Sam? Well, I think uh, the only player they would pick at two is a quarterback. And, um, you know, I, my gut feeling tells me that they will probably end up trading Sam. Uh, there's just too many. I've been around this for a long time. And, you know, you talk to people and you read tea leaves and there's just too many tea leaves right now that suggest that the team is looking to move him. If, if they get an offer in the second round, you know, something in the 35 to 45 range, uh, I could also see a scenario where they swap, you know, they kind of move maneuver in the first round, uh, like a team like Washington or San Francisco, maybe moving places in the first round with the Jets. In the end, I think the equivalent will be a second round pick. And if the Jets get that offer, I think they will probably take it. Um, I personally, uh, for those who've read me or listened to my podcast, they know I'm not really in favor of trading Sam. It's not that I'm like you, Will. I don't know if I'm so much of a Sam defender. I'm a defender of the dynamic that involves keeping him. Because I think if they keep him, have him better coached, uh, have better talent around him, he can improve as a quarterback. I don't think he's ever going to be a top 10 quarterback, but I think he could get into the middle. And I also think the key part of it is that second pick, you trade it, you know, you move down and trade with a team that really wants a quarterback. The Jets could get a, a really big haul for that. You know, you're talking about probably a second rounder this year, maybe a third also, and perhaps a future number one, depending on how far they go down. Personally, that's what I would do because they have so many holes to fill and I am not sold on any of the quarterbacks not named Trevor Lawrence in this draft, but that's just me. I'm not the GM. I think ultimately Sam will be playing elsewhere next season. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Um, I'm still holding out a little bit of hope. Um, I think that a lot of the hype that Zach Wilson's getting and, and whether it's by people in the media, like a Chris Sims, for example, ranking him above Trevor Lawrence, and you've seen a lot of now Urban Meyer talking up uh, Zach Wilson. Um, I actually think the Jets have never been in, maybe they had in the past, but in my, my recent memory, they've never been in a better position where number two is so valuable in a QB needy league. People are so high on Zach Wilson, obviously high on Trevor Lawrence, and the Jets are in a situation where they still do have a 23-year-old asset. Um, you know, on their hands. So I don't think they can make a wrong decision per se, but 
my preference would be to build the roster as highly as possible. And theoretically, this might be talking out of both sides of my mouth, but if Sam weren't to work in year four, um, your roster would be good enough that next year you'd have assets to go up and get a guy if you wanted or the cap space to be able to see somebody else. So um, that's just, that's just my opinion. But um, in terms of, you know, there's also the hot topic of Deshaun and Russell Wilson. Um, I think Deshaun gets traded. I'm not positive by any means that Russell Wilson does. Um, Do you see the Jets being involved in either or both? And do you think it's realistic or fans should maybe relax a little bit on the hype there? Yeah, I think ultimately, I think Deshaun will get traded and, you know, used to, I mean, they can say what they want, but the bottom line is, um, you know, they're going to get within a 72 hours of the draft and they're going to decide this guy isn't budging. We have to try to make, get what we can for him and they'll get, you know, they'll get a great haul of draft picks and players. I do think despite Joe Douglas's uh, public you know, uh, throwing of the wet blanket on that situation. I do think the Jets would be interested. How can they not be? I mean, they have the second pick in the draft. They'd be sitting in the driver's seat if they wanted to make an offer to Houston. And uh, ultimately, I don't think they'll get him because it's going to take, you know, probably at least three number ones and some players. And I just don't think that's in Joe Douglas's DNA. You know, I've talked to people who, who know him really well. He comes from the Ozzie Newsome school of uh, scouting and roster building. And, and I had someone research this for me just the other day. Ozzie, in all his years as the Baltimore GM, never traded a first round pick for a veteran player. And so I, I'd be really shocked if, uh, if Joe did that. As for Russell Wilson, I kind of think he won't get traded because I'm, I'm looking at it from Seattle's perspective and it's like, where are we getting our quarterback from? You know, like you trade him to Chicago. I think Chicago wants him badly, but Chicago has what the 18th pick of the draft and Nick Foles. I mean, that's not going to satisfy Seattle. That's not going to get them a quarterback. So, I mean, if the jets were to get involved in that, I mean, they could give Seattle their quarterback because they have the number two pick. But I don't think Joe Douglas goes there simply because of Russell Wilson's age. Uh, I think, what, 33 by the time the season starts? Uh, The thing about Deshaun, and I am very much on the Deshaun bandwagon, you know, because he's only 25 and he is signed through 2025. That's why I would give up a tremendous amount of draft capital to get him. Uh, I would not give it up for Russell Wilson. And I think he's great. But for the Jets, at, at a 33-year-old quarterback, they're, they're not just a quarterback away. And so that's why I don't think that's a good match for the Jets. I think the ultimate wrench, I tend to agree with you on everything you kind of said there, but the ultimate wrench is if Russell Wilson were to get traded first, the Jets' leverage of having Seattle's pick next year without Russell Wilson in Seattle, yeah. and then number two. I mean, I, like again, I don't think Russell gets traded, but that's the one – X factor because then all of a sudden now the Texans have no leverage and the Jets have the two most valuable assets arguably of the draft other than you know Jacksonville's pick but they're not yeah. trading Trevor Lawrence so yeah, uh, that number two pick I don't think yeah. people realize how valuable it is because I see all these guys on TV and some people say oh the Jets should give four number ones to Houston for Watson but wait a minute that number two is really it's like a, a one and a half and 
if you compare it to a lower first round pick, it's really like two ones. It's a tr tremendous value for the Jets. And I, I think Joe Douglas knows that, obviously. He's got that in his hip pocket. And I could see them offering the two and something else for, for Watson, but I don't think they'd go much beyond that. Yeah, no, I totally, I, I totally understand that. And it's, it's tough because as much as it's nice in theory, you also just have to remember, like, we're not Joe Douglas. And, and if he really does, you know, want to be building this strong young roster, it is going to be tough to convince him to get those picks. But again, if anybody in the NFL is worth it outside of Mahomes, in my opinion, I think Deshaun's probably the most, obviously yeah. the situation is different. He might be the second most valuable guy, age, et cetera. But from a free agent perspective, obviously free agency starting, um, in a couple of days, we're in that tampering period, I believe starts either Saturday or Sunday. Um, where do you, how do you see the Jets kind of playing it out? I know last year, I think, you know, Douglas was obviously very reserved, a lot of one-year contracts, put them in a good situation. They have a lot of money, but he has, uh, you know, said a lot about building through the draft. So do you see them being, if you had to rate it on an aggressive scale out of 10, how do you see it kind of playing out? Well, I think a 10 would be something like, what Miami did last year, you know, when they just uh, you spent a ton of money. Uh, so that would be a 10. Um, you know, one would be just sitting on their hands. And so I think the Jets will probably be, I think they will be about a seven because, you know, they do have uh, 60 something million to spend. Uh, I don't think they're going to take the approach they did last year. Last year was really more of a Band-Aid free agency spending spree. Uh, they did spend a lot last year. Let's not, I mean, they did end up spending, I think I told it up the other day, it was over 50 million in fully guaranteed contracts. That worked well. So there was nothing to sneeze at. They did spend, uh, I don't think they spent wisely. Uh, I, I don't think they uncovered any good players out, out of all that spending. But the good thing was it really didn't damage their cap this year because it was mostly one-year contract type stuff, as you mentioned, except for Connor McGovern. Uh, but this year, I think he'll turn it up a notch. I think he's going to get involved with some of the higher-end guys. Um, you know, I don't see them getting multiple high-end guys, but, um, you know, I think like Thune and Corey Lindsley are, uh, will be at the top of their list. Um, everyone's speculating on, on Galladay. I don't, I don't see that. I don't see Joe Douglas spending $20 million on a wide receiver who frankly, I mean, he is supposedly the best in free agency. I think he's good, but I wouldn't spend 20 million on him. Uh, it's a very good draft for wide receivers. Again, the jets have the five picks in the first three rounds. We cannot, uh, I think Joe Douglas is very mindful of that as he's going into free agency. But uh, so I think they'll go for uh, some interior alignment. They need help there. Uh, I do think they'll get like a middle of the pack wide receiver. Um, I don't think it'll be Juju. You know, Will Fuller is a guy they like. You know, Kendrick Bourne from San Francisco. Uh, you know, he's not going to you know, get on the back page of the papers when they, if they sign him. But it's a guy that knows the system and can come in and play. And I think also keep an eye on on linebackers. I think that is a position where they are dangerously thin right now. And uh, I think they'll look for linebackers. Yeah, as much as I'm really excited about CJ Mosley coming back, and I think he can do a great job in this scheme, similar to how Fred Warner and Bobby Wagner and KJ Wright have played in a similar type system. 
Yeah. Um, we've waited for 16 games out of CJ Mosley since he signed, and I hope it happens, but I'm not, you know, I'm not investing my future in somebody that hasn't played in two years, essentially. I agree with you on the in the in, the interior offensive line. I think Lindsley and, and Dooney, if you put them next to Becton and you kick McGovern to guard, all of a sudden your offensive line goes from a probably bottom seven, five, if I'm being generous, to the top 12 offensive line. Um, I agree with you on the receiver front as well. I like Gallaudet a lot, but again, it's it's tough for me to in a receiver-heavy draft and a receiver-heavy market, quite frankly, even without Robinson, to spend $20 million is tough. I like Curtis Samuel a lot. I like Bourne as a depth guy. Uh, I like Fuller, even though it's a little disappointing if we signed Fuller after a year after Robbie, who's a similar type player that's always healthy, and then you don't pay him. It's that it's a little yeah, hard. The contracts will probably be pretty similar too. And uh, Fuller is a boomer bust guy. Um, I think he does have talent. Um, you know, he's still suspended for another game because of that PED. But um, you know, so you could really hit on Fuller. Or it could really backfire on you. And, um, you know, they, um, the interesting one to me is Crowder, because I had been hearing a while ago that he was in some jeopardy. I, I don't think they'll move on from him unless they do sign someone at receiver who's, who's a slot guy who's, who's making significant money. So then I could see them moving on for him. You know, this, we started with $60 million. It sounds like a lot. It goes fast. I mean, when you start you know, giving away, you know, 10 million a year without contracts, it, it goes pretty fast. So, you know, I, I think they'll, they'll have a methodical plan. They're going to try to, you know, yeah, I was going to say it's 60, whatever million, it sounds great. And then you pay Joe Tooney $18 million a year and all of a sudden a third of that's gone. Uh, so you got it like, yeah, all it all is, you know, um, in perspective, I guess, but the other, the last thing on free agency, I just want to cover is like, Guys like Richard Sherman, um, some of the other veterans, Patrick Peterson's out there. It's just guys at corner. Um, you know, you've seen people like Quan Alexander be cut this week. Um, do you see the Jets being kind of heavy in that um, taking a flyer on a vet that got cut, making big money like a Sherman or, I mean, Sherman was a free agent, but it was, you know, it's, it was pretty yeah. big money. Well, the advantage of signing a street free agent is that it doesn't figure into the comp formula. So, I mean, there could be some benefit to that. Uh, you know, Sherman, the obvious connection, I know he loves Sala, you know, vice versa. I just have a hard time. I think Richard's going to go to a team that is much closer to contending, you know, maybe Las Vegas. Uh, you know, I, I'd be kind of surprised if he made, unless, unless somehow the appeal of the New York market, I'm sure he's looking ahead to his next career. He'll probably get into broadcasting or something like that. And so maybe that appeals to him. Uh, if I were the Jet, I mean, I think he'd be good for them at the right price, but no, he's probably going to be about seven or eight million. And so I would tread lightly if I were the Jets. I think he'd be great for their locker room. They need a leader on defense. Um, but how healthy is he? And, uh, you know, I think in the draft, you know, they could get a good corner either at uh, 23 or 34. So, um, yeah, so that, that one I tread lightly on. I think the guy to watch is from San Francisco. It was Kawan Williams, the slot corner. Uh, he's a Robert Sala favorite, and I think he would be uh, more likely than Sherman. That makes, that makes sense. And Brian Poole being an impending free agent and having missed a lot of time last year, I can see him yeah. um, kind of flopping there. The last, the last one I wanted to cover just on the in-house guys, I know Marcus May was tagged this week. Um, but then there's a lot of stuff his agent's leaking. He's going to hold out of camp. The Jet, I've seen stuff the Jets are leaking. They'll trade him. 
Um, do you think this plays out civilly and he either gets an extension or plays on the tag, or can we see a situation where they tag and trademark is made? You know, uh, he doesn't really have much leverage. Um, he's not going to hold out for the season. I mean, could he hold out for training camp? I mean, the penalties now <clears throat> are so severe that, you know, I, I think there'll be some, some rhetoric going on. Clearly, we've already entered the rhetoric stage, you know, his agent, you know, using social media, which I know uh, did not sit well with the Jets, um, despite what Joe Douglas said publicly. After the uh, Jamal Adams stuff, I don't think any social media stuff with Joe Douglas is going to fly anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I think Joe learned some painful lessons from the Jamal Adams experience. I don't think he handled that well. Now, in the end, I thought he uh, saved face and ended up getting a good value for Jamal, but I thought there were missteps along the way. And so you would hope that he would learn something from that. But this is kind of a different situation because, um, you know, Marcus doesn't even have a contract right now. You know, Jamal had two years left on his deal. And so, uh, yeah, I think this situation is going to fester for a while. Um, look, we know this for a fact. You know, Joe Douglas doesn't like to pay premium dollars for safeties. You know, he wouldn't pay Jamal what he wanted. And he just, like a lot of people in the league don't consider safety like a quote unquote premium position, like a corner or an edge rusher. So he's not going to go past a certain, you know, past a certain point. And I, I think a fair number, I think the tag number is at 10.6. I've done a lot of research on it. I've talked to a lot of agents. I think a good number for Marcus is somewhere in the 10 to 12 million a year range. I believe his agent is asking for in the 14 millions. And I, I, that would put him among the top two or three safeties in the league. And I don't think he deserves to be there. I think he's a good player, not a great player. And so, yes, this, this will uh, continue on for a while. Plus entering that age 28 season as a safety. I mean, he could obviously, you know, adjust and the scheme could work out, but safety is such a reliant position on the guys around you, similar to corner and other places where, you know, if you don't have a pass rush, et cetera, it's tough, but um, kind of speaking about Douglas and some of the people you've covered, obviously, you know, in the last 20, 25 years with the Jets and different GMs and coaches, how has things changed? Um, I've noticed a lot, at least personally, that there's been so many less leaks out of the organization as a whole. Um, you know, you hear so, like so few people have, have even like any idea of kind of what's going on there. You looked at the solid thing, it was dead silent. And then all of a sudden, boom, he was hired. Um, has, how have things changed from your point of view or people that are on the beat when it's Douglas is so in-house versus McHagan that felt like was very much more open. And that's just my point of view, you know, looking at how does that change for you? Yeah, I think it's because, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess maybe to some degree, I agree with that. I think you're talking about a lot of new people in there now. So anytime there's new people, uh, you know, it's relationship building. And so I, I don't know Robert Sala. I've never met him. Uh, normally I would have by now because like of, COVID uh, doesn't help the situation much at all. Yeah, the COVID. And so I think if you look back through history and certainly I'm uh, well uh, versed in jet history, I think anytime there's a new regime that comes in, you go through this period and, uh, you know, they're treading lightly and, you know, they don't know us, we don't know them. And so, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, other, other than that, I don't think anything out of the ordinary. That makes sense. I was just curious just because it's, it's so different. It feels like from 
um, Joe versus some of the other people in the building and stuff like or that have been in the building in the past. But kind of speaking of some of the people you've covered, who have been maybe some of the um, your favorite players and either teams to cover? Um, I know there's obviously always the Rex Ryan. Everyone always brings up Rex, but um, who are some of the, you know some of the guys that you really enjoyed covering and um, from either coaching or playing point of view? Really, I've uh, I've enjoyed so many of the coaches uh, that I've covered. I mean, you mentioned Rex. You know, Rex was was fun. You know, he made things fun, and and I think he was a good football guy, especially on defense. I don't think he got enough credit for that. Sometimes because of his own doing, because he would overshadow it with something he said or something he did. But you know, he was enjoyable to cover. Um, you know, I liked covering, uh, you know, look, Todd Bowles was not the most exciting guy in the world, uh, but I have a great amount of respect for him. We still get along. We still text. And I know Jet fans are going to go bananas when I say this, but, you know, Adam Gase, while he obviously did not do a good job as a, as a coach, I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. I mean, his record speaks for itself, but my Twitter, I'm sure I well. you know, he was good in the press conferences because, you know, he, I think he, he explained things, um, you know, we went back at him sometimes, you know, and he would go back at us a little bit. And so I like that. I like that give and take with, with people instead of just sitting there, like sometimes Todd would just sit there and he was so stoic, you know, Eric, you know, Adam would me mess around with you a little bit. And uh, I think there was a side to him that fans never got to see, like during practice, he would come over and talk to the writers and uh, explain to us like what was happening at practice and what this guy was doing or what kind of plays they were running or planning to run. And so I don't think the fans got a chance to see that, but uh, ultimately you're judged by your record and he had a bad record, but you know, Parcells probably the most interesting or fascinating individual I've ever covered just because he was so brilliant yet um, he could be ornery at times. And uh, I was on the receiving end of some of that in his press conferences. Uh, he could be charming at times. Uh, I get along with him to this day. We, we talk every, every few months I'll call you know, wish him, you know, see how he's doing. And, um, you know, he was just, I learned a lot of football, you know, every day you would learn something about football talking to him. And uh, that would, that made it, and it, and it was must watch TV. It, it was like, you had to watch his press conferences because you never know what would happen. And uh, he was great. I really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, most of the, I can't even, you know, Co-Tight was the only co coach I really did not get along with great. Uh, I just thought he was kind of a fraud, you know, and, and just Again, the record, his, the record, his record that as well. Yeah. His record was what it was too. You could, there was no way to defend that. And, uh, but players, there's so many great players, uh, you know, uh, you know, my favorites, you know, from Curtis Martin to Vinny Testaverde, um, you know, uh, even recently guys, maybe not the fans don't, uh, that are not household names like the Rontez Mileses of the world and Kelvin Beecham and Brandon Copeland, all really good guys. The quarterbacks, I've got, I, you know, got along with so many of the quarterbacks to this day. I talked to Boomer Sison every once in a while. Um, you know, Ken O'Brien, I'm still in touch with. Uh, you know, uh, Fitz was fun to cover. Josh McCown is, was a cool guy. I really enjoy him. I stay in touch with him. Um, the only, you know, guys I didn't get along with, 
uh, Geno Smith, clearly that relationship has not, uh, then it wasn't great and it isn't great now. Um, he attacked me on social media, uh, I think about a year ago when I did a, like a look back on his uh, confrontation with IK. That did not sit well with him. Darrell Rivas and I, uh, for whatever reason, did not get along. We had some uh, heated, I would say heated arguments in the locker room uh, toward the end, especially that last year, you know, when Darrell was going through a lot of stuff and he wasn't playing well, he really, uh, man, uh, just, we just did not get along. It was just oil and water there. So, which is unfortunate because he's such a great player. He's going to be in the hall of fame someday. And uh, yeah, so uh, I've been fortunate to cover a lot of interesting and very compelling players. It's, it's pretty funny and like interesting from an outside point of view, obviously, People that are on the beat, Bob Glover mentioned some of the same people you did. Janae Coakley mentioned a couple of people um, on today's podcast, like about how great of a guy Todd Bowles is. And as a fan, you don't see the emotion side of it and you're not close to, you don't, you know, you're not speaking with him, but how good of a guy he was. And, um, you know, everyone mentioned it's pretty funny, like Vinny Testaverde. I mean, I was a young kid, so I don't, maybe I don't have the same perspective on it, but everyone mentioned Vinny as this just great guy to cover, a great guy to talk to, this warrior. Um, when he's playing and it's just interesting to look back at some of the quite frankly great players that have come through here and it's interesting it's always I always like hearing the same names over and over because you know that that's you know not just one person liking them it's the respect that they have for the media vice versa and um, you know I, I enjoy you talking about Adam just because this year part of the highlight as a fan was some of the uh, Monday and Friday pressers with uh, you guys kind of going back and forth and it's pretty entertaining. I have to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, Adam was good for give and take. I mean, ultimately, you know, you know, I thought he did a really poor job with the offense. Obviously Sam regressed under his watch. Um, you know, I was critical of the way he was running the offense. Uh, I think he appreciated the job the media had to do. And uh, look, you know, we had, I, there were times where I talked to him after games that night, you know, and just going over the game and, uh, for the most part, he was, he was not thin skinned though. Uh, he was not, I mean, I had coached it like Bruce Coslett was very thin skinned. Uh, he would get the littlest things seemed to upset him. He seemed to read everything. And, and Adam was cool. You know, he, you know, maybe once or twice, he, he let me know that something I wrote was not accurate, but he was very, you know, from a reporter coach standpoint, I had no issues with him, even though we did get into a couple of, you know, sparks were flying after a game a couple of times when we were pressing him on some whatever. And, uh, you know, he stood his ground and we stood our ground. But, um, you know, like I said, I, what was his record? He won, uh, he won nine games in two years. That's, that's not good under any scenario. So, um, but as a covering him from a media perspective, I, I had no problems with him. In terms of um, obviously, there's been more. There's been some specific teams that would stand out. Um, you know, from how great they were. Obviously, '98, 2009, 2010 stick out the most. Who would you say a was the best team you've covered? Because I think all, obviously all three ended in the same spot. There's a couple other teams early 2000s that were really good. And who was a team that you would say was the most entertaining? I, if I'm going to guess here, and I'm going to I'm going to say you're going to say '98 was the best, and 2010 was the most entertaining. That's just my guess. You tell me if I'm right. 
Yeah, entertaining. It depends what you mean by entertaining. I think 98 was the best team I covered. Uh, that team was loaded, especially on offense. Um, you know, they were just – and they were just so well coached. I mean, that was like a who's who coaching staff. I mean, with Belichick and Groh and Romeo and Charlie Weiss, Todd Haley, Mangini. Think of how many head coaches came off that staff. Uh, Bill Muir, a great offensive line coach, um, Carthon. And uh, that, that team, man, when they were up 10 nothing uh, in Denver in the championship game, I turned to my colleague at the Daily News, Gary Myers, and I said, Gary, I don't believe it. The Jets are going to the Super Bowl. And uh, maybe I jinxed them, you know, and then Denver scored, you know, what, 23 unanswered points or something like that. And I just remember the look on Parcells' face. I went up to him in the locker room after the game as he was getting dressed. I just wanted to thank him, you know, for, you know, for the year. And, um, it was like he was as white as a ghost and it was just it was like the blank look on his face and to this day I think he'll call it the most painful loss of his career um, so that team was really good entertaining wise you know definitely the 2010 team was was up there uh, you know what another really really good team was in fact Mike Tannenbaum told me this after the fact the best team he he ever was there for was the 08 Jets which did not make the playoffs, uh, fell apart at the end and got Mangini fired, that team was loaded. I mean, uh, you know, when Favre was healthy, um, you know, what, eight and three? Thomas Jones on that team, you know, they had a really good defense. That offensive line was fantastic. Alan Fanica, you know, just got in the Hall of Fame. You know, Woody, uh, Mangle, Brick. Brandon Moore, you know, that was a, an outstanding team that should have been in the playoffs and just basically Brett's arm fell off at the end. You know, that had he not gotten hurt, they probably would have been in the playoffs. I think they could have done some damage that year. So that was another really good team. But entertaining-wise, I also think the 96 Jets, even though they were horrible and they went 1-15, uh, they lost in so many creative comedic ways that it was kind of funny after but after a while they became sad and there was almost this human drama this human interest element to covering that team and by the way a great bunch of guys maybe one of my most favorite that locker room had so many good guys in it and they were good they were just so poorly coached they had talent and that 96 team could have kicked the ass of last year's two and 14 team without a doubt so uh, that was an entertaining year just because of the uh, just the, the good people in the locker room and just and just the, uh, you know, sometimes the best stories don't always come from winning. Sometimes the most compelling stories come from losing. And that year was there was a lot of losing. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty funny, though, like um, when I hear some of the stories about some of those teams, I remember um, 08, too. It was like I think they were what, eight and three and then. Um, they lose to Buffalo week 17 or Miami week 17. And it was like, I think Farvin in it through an interception, like two weeks before, like, I don't know if his bicep was torn or what happened, but it was so disappointing. And then you see a lot of those guys that contributed in 2009, 2010. And I feel like similarly to kind of what you mentioned of the 96 or 97 teams. Um, I know 97, they missed out the final week and against Detroit, I believe, but 
a lot of those guys contributed so heavily to 98 that um, it's like you just really it shows you how much coaching is so important and having that right blend and everything kind of break yeah. that right way. Last, last I, year, I remember uh, you remember in 08 they beat Tennessee uh, down in Tennessee and Tennessee was undefeated at the time. And I, I don't know what the Jets were, but they were really good. And Favre had a great game. And the Jets just really kicked their ass. And I remember talking to Damian Woody in the locker room. And I don't know what made me just remember this, but he he had the stat sheet. He was he was looking down the stat sheet and he was reading the stats. And the Jets dominated in every category over Tennessee. And Damian was going down the list. And all of a sudden, he just turned around and he threw it in his locker. And he, and he goes, you know, basically like as an exclamation point, you know. And I, I, he goes, you know, this team is really good. And he just like spiked his stat sheet as if to emphasize it. And they were talking Super Bowl. The players were absolutely thinking they were good enough to go to the Super Bowl. And, and then it all fell apart. One, one day we'll get there. I was just curious. I, I know a lot of, especially specifically ESPN, there's so many former Jets and NFL Network as well. Um, some of those guys, but specifically at ESPN, it feels like there's a lot of really big Jets personalities, Damian Woody, Keyshawn, Bart Scott, just to name a few, Mark, um, who's a dream podcast guest just because I'm a USC fan, Rex too. It's like, it's pretty, it's pretty entertaining. Um, who would you say it was the more entertaining player to cover? I'm just going to use two of them, Bart or Keyshawn. They're both very uh, big trash talkers, loud, vibrant, really good players. Who is more, who would you say is more uh, entertaining to cover? Well, when you say entertaining, I, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily looking for entertainment value when I cover a player. I, I mean, if you're talking in terms of making news and, and, you know, creating sparks and creating headlines, Keyshawn was second to none, really. I mean, from the day he walked in as a rookie, uh, he was, I mean, he was unfiltered. He was brash uh arrogant but he was really good and uh i mean from day one he and he was just came from la you know number one pick in the draft he had a he had a great personality the big smile and so he was i worked for the daily news at the time he was instant back page i mean if Keyshawn said something interesting boom back page and he knew that you know, he knew how to push our buttons and, and, and get to, if he wanted to be on the back page the next day, he could, he knew how to do it. You know, Bart was, people forget that. And I like Bart. We get along great now. I, I've been on SNY shows with him. I think he's a really good analyst. And I think he's on the ascent in terms of his broadcasting career. But, you know, Bart went through a period where he didn't even talk to the media when uh, he boycotted the media one year tried to get other players on the team to boycott the media. So there was, there was like a chill for a while. It, you know, there definitely was, it was not a warm and fuzzy relationship with the media for a while, but when, when he wanted to turn it on, there, you know, there was no one better than Bart because he was very astute. He knew football and he knew how to charm you. And much like Keyshawn, he knew how to make headlines but he was uh, not as, he was a little more, like I said, there, there was some times where he didn't want anything to do with the media. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look back because everyone just has the, uh, you know, can't wait headline with Sal Palantonio right after, you know, the game, yeah. the moment. And then obviously Keyshawn with the give me the damn ball and the book and the whole nine yards. It's pretty, 
it's pretty wild to look back on if that stuff happened, especially like the stuff with Keyshawn happened now, how it'd be received. And you look at even guys like a Nodell or people like that in the last five years that are like very big personalities, how people receive them. I can't imagine Keyshawn playing in the Twitter, uh, Instagram age. I, I don't know how that would have been received. Yeah, I don't know, but he, you know, he knew how to market his brand and, you know, that book was, was ahead of its time. It was explosive. Uh, it didn't do him any favors in the locker room. Obviously it created, uh, some long lasting, uh, issues with Wayne Corbett and, and some of the coaches there and Neil O'Donnell. I mean, it really created a fracture. It probably would have ripped apart the team had it not been Parcells, because that book came out when Parcells was the coach. So even it was about Keyshawn's rookie year under Cotite, but by the time the book came out, Parcells was the coach. And I remember I, I broke the story. I got a copy of the book, you know, from someone and I, we, you know, splashed it all across the back page of the Daily News. And the next morning, I remember in those days, we were allowed to go into the Hofstra parking lot. There was uh, an open gate and we could actually hang out in the parking lot during the off season. If players drove up, we could interview them. There was no barriers at all. It was great. And so I got there really early one morning. I was about seven in the morning. Uh, I wanted to get player reaction to the book. And Parcells pulls in in his Cadillac and he took one look at us. There must have been a few of us there. And he's just like, enjoy it now, fellas. The wall's going up soon. And sure enough, they built a, they built a wall. It wasn't a wall. It was a barbed wire fence around the parking lot and the press area. And we, we were like banned. We got nowhere near the parking lot under Parcells. So um, he put us in our place after that. Pretty interesting because like I have a vivid memory of that when I was like five turning six that was my first training camp through some of the stuff my grandpa was doing with um the west side stadium and I was like my first training camp and I remember so vividly 2000 was the first year and we walked in and like I literally could just I walked in the locker room I did whatever I wanted I was on the field no problem and then the next couple of years things got more and more um you know you had to really like <laughs> be somebody to get on the field and it was just like now it's like I look at training camp and people go up and watch a scrimmage and stuff and it's just it's so different the way like the access I used to have to some of these guys well, like a regular kid yeah we knew we knew it was going to be different when he hired a former FBI agent to be the head of security so uh you know we we knew things were going to get would get a little crazy at that point last question before you let you go Syracuse basketball do they make the tournament and how do they how do they get back to uh some of the glory days well they lost to virginia by three uh so i think they would have been in for sure if they won i'm hoping the committees you know the fact that they played well at the end of the year and uh you know gave the number one seed in the acc a pretty good game today i watched uh, most of that game and uh they played well so i'm hoping they're good they're going to be right on the bubble they have a really good recruit coming in next year. Um, so I think uh, they lose a couple of players. I'm, I'm hoping they, you know, Jim's recruiting has, has fallen off in recent years. And I'm hoping, I mean, his son has turned into a really good player and uh, I'm hoping they could get things going again. Um, you know, we used to be, uh, maybe we were spoiled. We always assumed that we would uh, be in the tournament every year, but now that's not the case. Hopefully, 
the committee looks kindly upon our uh, late season uh, flurry here. Well, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time today, Rich. If you want to find Rich, um, Plaster All Over ESPN is Twitter, Instagram, and Rich Samini. And then, um, you know, Flight Deck as well as podcast is joined by a lot of great guests. And, um, you know, be sure to make sure you're following him during free agency and draft. And there'll be a lot of hopefully big news and some good stuff coming in a positive light for the Jets um, down the line. But thanks again. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, try to have you on when we get some closer to the season. We can preview some of the stuff. Thanks. My pleasure. I enjoyed it.